Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ortho Podcast. First episode this week. I'm your host, Dr. Asad Kala. This week, I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Dr. Jay Chen, and a very special guest, uh, Dr. Brittany Warren, who we both known for a while. Uh, one of the more interesting people I know, very interesting perspective into orthopedics and medicine in general. And we get into different things like uh, how she just matched into fellowship and, uh, you know, step one being pass fail and diversity in medicine and orthopedics. So I uh, hope you enjoy. I just want to go with it. We're just going to freestyle. Hmm. Yeah, we're freestyling because we started recording as soon as you said that. Hey, everyone. This is the side clear. I'm here with my friend, Jay Chen, MD, and our special guest today on the very first ever episode of the Fractured Knowledge Podcast, Dr. Brittany Warren. Brittany, how's it going? Hey, guys. Good. Hey, Brittany. So hey, we can talk about whatever we want here. Um, we know Brittany through residency and... I've known Brittany since you're a medical student. Yep. Right? Yep. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Jay, Jay, were you there for that? I don't remember Brittany as a medical student. I don't think she was very memorable. But she was was definitely a great junior resident. So I remember (laughs) Brittany very well from those days, like eight months ago. Eight months ago. (laughs) I think that's the last time I've seen her. Yeah. No. North Carolina interview. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. stopped by for for a, a night for a UNC interview. Oh, was that confidential? Anyway, um, yeah. well, oh, that wait. leads to the next uh, thing I wanted to say, which is congratulations on your fellowship match. Tell the oh, world where you're going. Oh, Houston. I actually wore my Houston shirt. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. That's yeah. uh, How's, how's it feel to be done with that process? Good. I went on 15 interviews, which felt a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but yeah, it's it's good to be done. And then Lauren's staying here, so now we know we can start looking for houses and like having families and doing those kind of life things. How do you how do you decide if if I remember correctly, Houston was your top choice? How do you decide on Houston? Uh, I think a big part of it. So for me, I'm really excited about the coverage aspect of it. Uh, so I like that Houston has basically every sports team, and then looking at just the the caseload that they do and talking with the fellows and seeing how hands-on they get to be. And it sounds like at Houston, they get to do quite a bit. And then uh, Walt Lowe, Dr. Walt Lowe is a really big name down here. So knowing I want to stay down here and, and be a part of big sports is I think probably what you made should, it number one. That's a sports fellowship, correct? It is. Yes, it is a sports fellowship. <laughs> so how 15, much, um, sorry, go ahead. Jay. Okay. I was just trying to, remember because i can't remember exactly how how expensive is the whole fellowship process uh lauren i think i think it ended up costing probably about fifteen thousand, ten or fifteen thousand, because each you know each trip it's like the the flight would be probably three or four hundred and then the places i had to stay in a hotel would be another couple hundred uh it adds up it, it added up. I mean, I think at least $10,000, but it might have got up there to like fifteen. because with 15 interviews, it was just, is a lot of interviews. Then you, you but have then, to you know, some, the, sorry, you have to factor in the opportunity cost too of using your vacation time, uh, you know, yeah. all, all those days too. It, it, it comes out to be about 15, 20,000, I think for most people who are doing, yeah. you know, over 12 interviews uh, and 15 is a lot. 15's yeah. Which for sports, I think, you know, on the trail, it seemed like talking to people, 
it, it ranged. Some people were doing six, um, but I, you know, there's some programs out there that it sounds like they're only allowed to cap it out at five or six interviews. Um, and then they just, you know, that that's as many as they're allowed to do. Uh, luckily we don't get a cap on us right now. So, you know, we could do however many we wanted and it just, some of the people I've talked to, it's, it's, they've had to dip down far into their list. So I think it just gets scary um, to talk about only doing a handful when you don't really know. And that's the next step in life. Really the match process is just a pain in the butt. Um, I think the alternative sucks too, but it, it's just, I'm glad to be done with that aspect of life where you're waiting to see what a computer, you know, spits yes. out for you of where you're going. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a really uh, good article and I can't believe I'm going to say this because I, I don't read literature, but JBJS, um, <laughs> I think it's this month and their, their ortho forum, Chris Harner, who's also at Houston, um, gave a yeah, presidential, presidential address to the AOA and basically talked about the evolution of fellowship match. And yeah. he talks about the time before 2008 when 2008 is when they decided to go to the San Francisco match. Before that, it was really all word of mouth and, uh, you know, you know, un unspoken agreements. And, you know, it was a, it's basically a, a wild, wild west. So, right. you know, and that was what, 12 years ago, well, not, not that long ago. Um, but now it's kind of yeah. evolved into this It's sort of like residency match, right. Where, you're interviewing, you know, you're spending, your, you're spending your money to go interview, you're spending your time to go interview. Um, computer spits out the results and tells you where you're going to go. So I, I don't know what's, what's better or worse. I mean, obviously I think you need some sort of organization to it, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what's interesting? Um, I remember, like you said, it was, it wasn't very long ago where it was really unregulated. So I remember when I interviewed a few years ago, I'm not going to say which program or whatever, but when I was there, the program director said, literally, you know, we're no longer allowed to make handshakes or agreements. That being said, if you want to come here, find me afterward. So it was, it was kind of very interesting the way uh, some people still try to get around that. It's funny you know, that, I wonder, that because, because I, had an, I had an interview and yeah, I'm not going to say where either, but yeah. you know, the, the director said, you know, the, the San Francisco match prohibits us from talking to you after these interviews, but I know the guy who came up with this rule and he is the worst offender of it all. So, <laughs> oh, no. if you will. so it's, you know, it's, it's quote unquote regulated, but is it mm -hmm. really? I mean, I, I know I'm not going to say I broke any rules because I didn't because we are allowed to, yeah. email them. they're just not allowed to email us, but I definitely emailed and had people speak on my behalf and, I don't know if it helps or hurts, but I mean, if other people, I assume other people are doing it. So you gotta, you gotta stay competitive, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. I think that's a big unknown right now is even as, as simple as sending thank you letters. Cause it, remember in the residency interview trail, we would send thank you letters to everyone. Did you? Um, and this one I did in the residency, but uh, in fellowship I didn't. And it's because most of the places, on the interview, they tell you they don't want any kind of communication, no matter how much, you know, they like you or don't like you. They don't really want to hear back and forth because it's prohibited. But again, you know, on the trail, I talked with some of the fellows who said that they're at their, you know, the program they wanted and that they were very vocal about it to the program director during the interview, whole, you know, interview process. So I don't know. It's, that's a big gray zone, I think, in, in fellowship interviews right now. I think it's definitely 
advantageous to to make a note if you really want to go somewhere. And you know, I don't know. Obviously, you shouldn't break any rules, but it's definitely to your advantage, either communicating it through somebody or some other method. When I interviewed, I also you know my top choice. I don't. I don't think it's good to leave multiple places on. That's no. dishonest, and that that can get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely strongly hint that this is a place where you want to be if you feel that way. So. Yeah, what, what, what do you, like, go ahead. Okay. Um, what do you think we, what are some possible changes we could do to, if we could control the fellowship matching process to save money, to make it more on a level playing field? Do you guys yeah. have any ideas? So, you know, I know Trauma does a lot of their interviews at their national meeting. I think at least for sports and Mo, I'd, I'd be curious to see what your opinion is, having done most of a sports fellowship. I think it actually is a little bit more important to see the facilities, um, especially with, you know, doing sports coverage and athletic training and, you know, all, all of that business, I think did maybe have some sway on where I wanted yeah. to go, um, you know, for yeah. right or wrong. Well, I, I guess we should say I am a sports fellow right now. Jay is a foot and ankle fellow right now. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting we say that because sports is kind of unique in that sense with their interviews and that that's that can be a big selling point um i know when i was in, in kansas they took us to the you know the facilities there got to see part yeah. of the locker room and the training uh field and the practice field and stuff interestingly here here at Oshner, where i am in new orleans we do our whole interview date in the uh, smoothie king arena which is where the pelicans play so your mm-hmm. whole interview day is at the arena we don't actually go to the clinic at all or the ors yeah. So, you know, it's, you, you get a tour of the arena, tour of the locker room, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the real question is what do you need and what are you selling? Um, after you see your second or third OR in clinic space, like I, I don't remember what any of the clinic spaces look like. I don't remember what any of the ORs look like in my interview, but I do remember the locker rooms. I do remember the stadiums. And because for a lot of, t- a lot of people, that's going to be the only time they get to do that. So, um, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, it really is just a, it's a sale. And they're trying to wine and dine, and uh, you know that's part of it. Yeah, and and I would say you know the thing that at the end of the day really sold me with UT Houston was um, was actually Dr. Lowe kind of sitting and talking with him, and he puts it into a really good perspective, which is he's basically setting four hundred thousand dollars on the table in front of you, and you're pushing it back at him and telling him you know train me for a year and fill in the blank, you know, fellowship. But, you know, if it's sports, it's like train me for a year to be a good sports doctor and I'm foregoing, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 to go be in a, a junior level attending. So I think for me, just the fact that they care about you, you as a fellow and not just making you a PGY-6 in some ways um, and not just throwing you to do grunt work and scut work or you know, run a second OR for them, but actually teach you how to be good at what you're going to do, I think is a, is the, the most important thing it seemed like to me after being on that trail. You bring up a good point about fellowship in general and the opportunity, you know, there's, I forgot what journal it's in. I read this article. Look, I've been in quarantine. I got nothing to do except read. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, I'm a nerd. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> nerd. Reading JBJS all the time. I sound, I sound like a certain resident. <laughs> I wish I could read. <laughs> sound like you a sound certain like, resident that we all know. You sound like a certain. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think it was in Anna. If I'm, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll find it and I'll, I'll link it somewhere. <laughs> there's a there's a study basically looking at the opportunity cost of being a fellow, and it it's 
it's staggering, really. I wish I had the numbers off the top of my head, but doing a fellowship year and the opportunity cost of that is really significant. And, yeah. you know, the, the question is why? Why, why do over 90% of orthopedic residents go into fellowship? Is it, is it branding? Is it getting more experience? Is it because you're not ready to be a surgeon? I, I mean, obviously the answer differs for everyone. Um, you know, personally for me, it's, it's branding. I like, you know, I don't want to go rural. I don't want to be a generalist. I want to do sports and I want to be known as a sports doctor. So yeah. I give up the, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that I can take in a year to, uh, you know, basically be another resident for a year and do another residency, yeah. year. which, you know, I, you know, fellowships all across the country, they, they like to pitch this idea of, yeah, you're a fellow, you're not a resident, you're a fellow, but you know, every single place that I've been to and every single person I've talked to, you're, um, until you're making $400,000, $500,000 a year, you're a resident. And that's just, that's yeah. the bottom line. Your, your salary says what you are over there. So well, is it worth it? Is it worth giving up all of that? And it's not just money. I mean, it's time, it's commitment. Um, it's, it's the autonomy, it's, you know, all, everything that comes with it, is it really worth it? And is this really just a racket at this point that, you know, the world has turned towards sub-sub-specialist? Do you have to be a sub-specialist to compete? We, we all know general surgeons or general orthopedic surgeons that are very talented and very capable and, you know, do a great job taking care of patients. But do you, would you rather go to them for an ACL or would you rather go to a guy who did a sports fellowship for an ACL? Does it matter? I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that it matters. Um, you can't you can't do a study on that, really. Um, and I think that's just the way the world's turning now. So orthopedics, you know, I'd say I'd say for most people, orthopedics is a six year residency at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So those those papers that look at the the opportunity cost of doing a fellowship. Yeah, I remember one of them saying that those who go to pediatrics never make up that money that they lose. I think that's um, I think but, talking about the same one. But the thing is, like, I don't, I haven't read the methodology of those papers, but are they factoring in geographic location and those those sorts of things? Because nowadays, like you said, it's basically ninety percent of people doing fellowships. It's almost a, a mandatory requirement if you want to live in an area that you want to live. Like, if if you want to go to kind of middle of nowhere where there's not many orthopedic doctors you can make a lot of money as a generalist but in terms of an opportunity cost i think it's worth it doing a fellowship just to land in the metropolitan area that's if that's what you want to where you want to practice so i think it, you can't just look at it in terms of the the hundreds of thousands of dollars you lose because you're giving up some money up front to practice in the area that you want to practice and i think that that should be looked at as well not just pure numbers so to answer the question you posed, I do think it's worth it for the majority of people. Um, whether or not people, whether or not specialists perform better surgery or make better clinical decision making, you know, there have been studies looking at that um, ankle fractures created by specialists versus non-specialists. I think, I think in general, the way if you're a non-specialist, if you're a generalist, there are some very, very good generalists, and there are some that are not so good. And the same applies for specialists. There's some very good specialists and there's some that are not so good. Um, but I think the chances of getting someone who's comfortable with a specialized procedure, if you're a patient, you have a better chance going to a specialist than a generalist on average. That's not to say there aren't generalists who are awesome surgeons. We all know one you know, in our residency program. Um, but that being said, 
if I were a patient, I'd be a little more comfortable if there was a specialist in the area that I live, probably going to a specialist for a specialized procedure. For a general procedure, it might not matter as much, but for something that's like a revision ACL or a total ankle, you know, I don't know any generalists that are doing total ankles, but you know, I'd probably be more comfortable going to a specialist. Yeah, well, and I think the breadth of orthopedics too, in some ways, lends itself to have to have subspecialties. It's like Lauren, so for those of you who don't know, my wife is OBGYN, and they, I would say probably, I don't know the exact numbers, I'd have to look it up, but it seems like the majority of them are not doing fellowships, um, and she's not doing a fellowship. And I don't know if you can attribute that to, you know, having a few less procedures or less regions of the body versus us. You know, we have every extremity and every procedure in every extremity. So I don't know if that's why maybe then to put a year of focus in one place would help. Um, I think that, you know, some residencies seem to get better, especially with sports and going on that interview trail. Some of these guys in residency had really great sports experience, you know, and they were talking about, the multi-legs and, you know, the open shoulder experience that they're doing as residents where, you know, some other places, you know, ours maybe included where sports is a little bit more of a limited exposure, especially in the hands-on region. So, hmm. Yeah, you know, you talked about the OBGYN part too. Their, what, their fellowships were, what, three years? Something like four that? Years, yeah. Four years, yeah. Yeah. Oh, years. Four years. Oh, your fel- Oh, the fellowships. Yeah, three years. Three years. That's a lot. I have the. Lot. I have the expert sitting lot. here. So. The the other thing too to remember um, when I was a medical student, trying to think about what what residency I want to go into, and when I entered as a student, I thought there's no way I was going to do surgery because I didn't want to commit five years into training. And now it's right. now it's six years, like you said. But if you look at if you want to be something that's not primary care say you want to be a cardiologist or a GI doctor, there's, yeah, you can say there's only three years of residency, but then you're looking at three years of fellowship, maybe a chief year of residency, and then another year for interventional. So all in all, for a specialty, uh, for, spe- for a specialty training kind of area, I think orthopedics is, is pretty good. We put in five years up front for residency, one year of fellowship. But if you look at other specialists, you know, that's not bad. And in terms of reimbursement, we're we're doing pretty well, relatively speaking, to, to other specialties. So yeah. I think it's worth it. I don't think the training process is too long. I do think it can be cut yeah. short. You can definitely. Um, we can talk about ways oh, to do that. Like, like do, you really need, do you really need that fourth year of medical school? Like, what, what did you what did you actually learn your fourth year of medical school? For me, it was all about. We're, we're about to, we're about to find out test. with. Um, with medical school stopping. Yeah. This COVID yeah, that's thing. true. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. what probably a third, maybe a fourth or a third of your fourth year is kind of some kind of free vacation time yeah. anyway, it seems like. Yeah, and the um, rest is interviewing. And then the, rotating. Yeah. The other question I'd have is, you know, for someone, because Mo, I think you kind of knew you wanted to do sports going in. Is that right or, or did, not? Yeah. So me too. I, you know, I knew I was going into orthopedics knowing I wanted to do sports medicine. So, you know, when you know something like that, then the question becomes for the rest of my life, you know, I will likely do some degree of general. So trauma definitely is important. So some degree, probably foot and ankle and knowing how to do, you know, fix a fracture is important. Um, And maybe distal radius, but some of these, the spine, the amount of spine that we do in orthopedic residency, um, especially if you know you're not going to be doing spine and the fact that, you know, you can't even do spine without spine privileges. Um, And just a few of the other things I feel like we could kind of trim down 
and maybe do some type of accelerated track if you know which fellowship you're interested in. Well, it's a good point because it's really, it's a product of the education system as a whole, right? We have a one, we have a one size fits all education, whether it's from kindergarten mm -hmm. to high school to college. Well, college, I guess you get a little bit of play, but once you, once you get to med school and residency, it's definitely a one size fits all, right? It's, it's, this is the, this is what you're going to take. These are the classes or the rotations that you're going to take and this is what you have to do to finish. But we don't really know what you actually need and what you don't need. And um, I mean, to, to overhaul that would be huge, right? I mean, that would, that would be a revolutionary change in education. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a, it's a good question. And um, I don't know what to do about it. Honestly, like you, you, like what we get, we had what two, maybe two sports rotations, one sports rotation in our, in our five years of residency, something like that. Um, right. But we had three or four spine rotations and it's, uh, you know, for someone wanting to do spine, that's great for someone wanting to do sports. Yeah. How do you get a, how do you get a fair shake? How do you get a fair view of what you finding out what you want to do for people who weren't like us and who don't know what they want to do? Right. That's a good point. And then for some perspective, um, to, to cut in terms of ways of cutting medical school short, or if that's even feasible, at Duke Med School, they, they have an entire year of research. So mm -hmm. it's literally, they condense everything into three years, all the basic science and clinical training, and they give their students a year to do research, and their medical students seem to graduate just fine and, and do well in the match process. So I think yeah. there are definitely ways to do it. I think you should... For those who know early on what specialty they, they want to go to, maybe there should be an accelerated track to where, you know, you learn all the basic science, you get a broad exposure to the various subspecialties that are relevant to what you're going to do. do if you're going to do orthopedics, I don't know how many rotations in, I don't know, neurology or something that, that would really help you out. So yeah. you could cut some of the, the, the rotations that aren't going to be super useful to you and maybe focus on more surgical-based rotations and therefore fast-track your med school, maybe cut it short by a year and, and save some money. Yeah. Well, and then I guess in the same vein, making step one pass-fail like they're about to do and yeah. what that's what do, going to what do, do you think for about the orthopedic process. You're closer, you're closer to that than we are. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I – I would say, I, I think, you know, and I've read a few articles on it, but I think step two is just going to be the new barometer. You know, I think they're just going to find something else because unfortunately, and, you know, I, I hate that standardized tests are, you know, a way of, of weeding out people, but I don't know how else you do. Um, and, you know, especially when I don't remember how many I applied to, or I don't know if you guys remember how many you applied to, but you know, it, it was quite a few. I played um, everyone. I just, I hit every box. Every so I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not letting yeah. this box hold me back. And it costs a lot of money. That's another little, that's another yeah. theme that someone needs to change is the amount of money it costs to apply. But that's a different topic. Um, yeah. I don't know, Jay, yeah. you're going to, you're, you're going to be in academics in a few months yeah. and you'll be looking at applications. And yeah. when you see a bunch of passes on step one, what are you looking for? Um, first, I'm going to be, really happy that we're not using step one anymore as a barometer because I think it's really silly considering the test is like, I don't know, 90% basic science stuff to, as an orthopedic uh, surgeon, I'm going to be looking for residents who have talent, who can operate, who are good team players, who are hard workers, 
But don't, don't you think there's some merit in scoring high on step one? Don't you think that it shows a level of dedication, a, uh, an ability, one ability to take tests, because you're still going to have to take tests later on, an ability to take standardized tests. Yeah. The ability to I mean, some sort of intelligence. Like, I, I understand it's not perfect, but I mean, I think, I think there was some merit to having step one. I think, I think there's nothing really that step one adds that step two doesn't add that you know, that actually improves upon. I think step one is, there's some people that just hate studying basic science, you know, I, and that, I don't think that has any barometer on how well they do as, as a resident. And I, you know, I did fine on step one. That being said, I recognize that it's, it's stupid. The fact that I could sit there for five weeks and literally like 12 hours a day, shut myself in a room, you know, I, I don't think that makes me any, any better of a surgeon than, someone who is not as good at doing that. And so I, I'm going to be happy, you know, once you get rid of it, make it pass fail. The things I look for, I'm going to look for, is, is going to be a good work ethic, uh, coachability, um, whether or not they take pride in, in what they do. And that's hard to tease out on an interview, but I think yeah. the best residents are the ones who really, really take a lot of pride in their work. They don't leave a reduction halfway done you know, they don't put on a crappy splint and, and not try to redo it. Uh, good enough is not, not good enough for, for a good resident. And it's hard to tease that out, but that's something that I'm going to try to look for when, when I interview people for, for residency. Yeah. And then you can't measure that on step one. Yeah, you can't measure that. It, it just, it talks to the quality, it talks to the importance of having rotations also and actually getting to know people. And, you know, I, I've had, you know, I, I know some undergrads that have helped me with research and whatnot that, you know, when this news came through, he, like, he was devastated, like, uh, you know, because he, he was the guy who was going to study his ass off for step one, he was going to do fine, and that was going to be it for him, you know, and for people like that, we're, we're, I mean, be on, let's, let's be honest, we all know that if you studied your ass off for step one, and you'd scored well, you're probably matching in orthopedics, like, that was it. Like, as long as you didn't, you didn't fumble well, your rotations. Super weird. Yeah, like, there's, there's some fumble your interviews and fumble your rotations. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was the hardest step, and that was it. But now it's a huge unknown, right? How how are medical students mm -hmm. supposed to gauge how competitive they are at this point, right? You you never know what someone's writing in their letter, unless you're writing the letter, which I mean, some people get lucky. Um, you never really yeah. know how you're doing on a rotation. Right? How do, how do you, mm -hmm. it, it's tough. It's, it's a lot tougher now for, for these students. I feel for them. Well, and it's going to be tough for like you, Jay, you know, you used to be able to just run all these applications through some kind of algorithm and say, yeah, okay, I only am going to look at these 60. I don't know how you're going to filter them anymore. You know, I mean, you're going to be looking through shit, uh, hundreds of applications, you know, and like, it, I think it becomes a lot harder than to try to remember one from the other when you're on number you know 350 what was number one like and i i think that it's just gonna it's gonna make the process harder but at the same time i agree with you jay i think step one is a faulty instrument of measurement as well to see how good of an orthopedic surgeon you're gonna get yeah i'm gonna have a bench bench press set up in my office and a grip <laughs> and uh a to that, that test <laughs> if they can bench even 10 percent of what i can bench then then they're in <laughs> <laughs> but, um, in all honesty, though, I think I think the clinical rotation. I think Mo, you said it. The clinical rotation for me is going to be a huge factor. If if they rotate well with me clinically, 
then I'm ranking them close, you know, as long as there's not like 15 people that rotate well, but if there's like two or three people that rotate well with me, I'm going to rank them to match, period. Yeah, so here's, because that's, here's that's the change. most important thing. This is who this change, who, here's who takes advantage of this change the most, is people from their own medical students are probably going to end up at their medical student or medical school's residency. So if your medical yeah. school is lucky enough to have an orthopedic residency, you just got a big advantage, right? Yeah. Um, if your medical school does not have a residency, you need to rotate a lot more places, I think. That, that'll be my advice, is you need to do a lot more away rotations to get your name out there, which you might have been doing already. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. This, this, is a, this is a weird change. I never thought this would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised they did it. And uh, I don't know, it's gonna be really interesting to see. Here's a question, does this, does this improve or does this improve our selection process? Does this improve getting, well, I don't know. Does this improve getting more diversity into orthopedics? Because you're taking away, you're taking away a number. Theoretically, your applicants should be more equivalent on paper now since you don't have a filter to filter people out. But maybe not diversity, but is this, does this improve the screening process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Are, are, more, are people given an even playing field now? Because that's the purpose of this change, right? Was to give people an even playing field going into the interview process to try to pick people based on merit instead of scores. Does it achieve that? Well, there's still, there's still step two. So if you want to screen by number, you can still screen by step two. Um, and then, yeah, I see what you're getting at because there's subjective factors and there's objective factors. And by getting rid of an objective factor, then theoretically your subjective factors are, are they become more important. So I guess people's inherent biases could, you know, if you're ranking medical students and you have more subjective factors to go on, then your inherent biases may, may play a bigger role in, in your final ranking of the students. So That's I, think, I think it's possible. That's what I would think that if you take away the numbers, that's, uh, you know, for, for people who might not have as much of a chance to get into orthopedics as other people, that takes away a playing card in their hand. Uh, that's the way I see it. So if you're an underrepresented minority trying to get into orthopedics and you, you know, you don't have that step one card to play, I, I think w- without something like that, the, you know, in un, I think inherent biases come into effect and you're put at a disadvantage. That's the way I see it. Because you don't have that, you don't have that uh, trump card to play saying, look, I got a good step score. I'm, I'm worth the spot here. If it's between you and like, uh, you know, a white guy trying to get into orthopedics where you have the same letters of recommendations from the same attendings, subconscious biases, I think, play a bigger effect. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really interesting point. I, I, probably a, a sad but true one. Um, I, I wonder if we could make, and again, this is a giant overall on, on a system that's been the same for so long, but you know, I think I just worry again about the sheer number of applications that they're going to have to find some other way to cut it down. So I wonder if we could just put a cap on the number of places you're able to apply. Because when every person is applying to every place, I mean, it makes it impossible versus if you can apply to 10 and you really actually care about those 10 and you've researched the program and it fits you in whatever way, you know, then I think it makes it a lot easier. But I guess 
now that I'm saying that it's you may get everyone applying to HSS and no one applying to, you know, different yeah, programs. It, it becomes a lot more strategic then if you, if you cap them yeah. instead of just throwing a shotgun at the interview. Process. Probably, probably even more stressful for the applicants if it's that strategic. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think the worry is there. Um, one, you know, one good thing I've seen on the interview trail was I think that we are shifting um, the look of orthopedics and especially sports medicine. I still would say, you know, as a female going into sports medicine, I, there were more males on every interview than females. And I would say most we had probably four females interviewing of, you know, 30 um, out of the given interview day. But there was a lot more female faculty representation than I was expecting. Um, yeah, I think that. Why do you think... Why do you think uh, females statistically tend to go into certain fellowships, subspecialties than others? Because, you know, on the foot and ankle trail, there are probably more males than females in most interviews, but there are some interviews where there are pretty much equal numbers. Yeah. And then, you know, I think foot and ankle has a, a relatively high proportion of females. So does hand and so does pediatrics, I would say. So why is it, why is it that versus, say, spine, uh, whatever, trauma? I don't know about joints, but... You know, why do you think females, as a as a as a female specimen yourself, why do you think <laughs> females tend to gravitate towards certain subspecialties? Oh man, um, I think well, that's I, a hard I have, question. I have my I have my yeah. reason do, for sports. Do you have an idea? Okay, I go have ahead. my reason for sports. As a female supporter, Mo, uh, why do you think an ally, <laughs> ally. As a man who likes females, as a man who likes females, <laughs> as an ally to females everywhere, um, I think. <laughs> It's because, and this might, God, man, I hope this isn't sexist, but how, wait, you, you answer this. How many females in sports do you know that were former soccer players? Sports medicine, uh, former uh, soccer players. And that were, uh, I mean, I think every, Everyone. the majority of females on the trail were some type of athlete, athlete. in the okay. past. Perfect. And yes. how many of them, how many of those female soccer players tore their ACLs? And that's the reason they want to go into sports. Oh, yeah. Quite, I would say quite a few. I would say quite a few that's had some though. kind of personal experience with sports medicine. And I think, I think that's the same for guys too, right? Most of, most of these guys are like yeah. people who are – I mean, that's why they wanted to go into sports. We said someone fixed their ACL, right? That's a classic story. Um, huh, that's why I didn't do sports. But I think, <laughs> it, I, think I think it's because Never had a their ACL is at higher rates than men. So they get, they get their ACLs fixed more, and that influences them to go into sports medicine. <laughs> I like it, Mo. I think right? we need to do a research study on this. There's some science behind that. I think I'm surprised how often that's the answer on their essays. I need to I need to look at female applicant sports <laughs> essays and see how often I, I did. I luckily never tore my ACL, but I definitely <laughs> did include the. I, I mean, I included that I played sports and saw sports yeah. injuries, and, and that's what drew me yeah, to I it. Um, I, I I definitely put that in my essay at some point. So do females go into foot because they have bunions? <laughs> it's the high heels. <laughs> Is that no, why? I, I, um, huh. You're, the, you're the foot specialist here. <laughs> we should do a study. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think to some degree, females are still deterred from ortho just on, on some basis because we don't have mentors that we see. Um, who look like us to a degree. I think that's changing, um, especially on the sports interview trail. You know, I saw a lot more 
female faculty, I saw a lot more people who look like me. And, and again, that's only a small portion of, of what you need. Um, I have plenty of, of mentors and great people that I've looked up to, you know, you guys included, who don't exactly look like me. But, you know, you still find shared interests. And right. <laughs> except Jay with right. your we are gigantic both, biceps. <laughs> we are both under-rented, under, uh, underrepresented minorities, though, right? And I think that's yeah, exactly. part of what we're talking about mentorship and orthopedics is that yeah. there's not a lot of people who, who have the same struggles that you do going into it. So, and I don't know, Brittany, I don't know, your dad's not an orthopedist, right? No, yeah, he's my an engineer. An my, my dad's not an American orthopedist. Jay, your dad's not an orthopedist, right? The whole legacy factor. He, wish, he, wishes, he wishes he was, but no, he's not. <laughs> I think the whole legacy factor is important too. And uh, I don't know, we're getting off topic here, but... Um, yeah, I, I yeah. Think like, I think well, like the other thing I thought goes through your trouble. Yeah, the, the other thing on that topic that I've thought about is, and maybe you guys didn't have this, but for me, like, I definitely had imposter syndrome starting orthopedic surgery residency. You know, like, do I belong here? Am I good enough? All of that thought process. And, you know, I don't know if everyone has that, but I think it makes it maybe a tad bit harder when you look at the people who are who are your faculty and who are the people you're looking up to and they don't look like you, I think sometimes that can also just accentuate that imposter syndrome that I think a lot of people do feel. Maybe not. Maybe as the only one who felt it. But, you know, I think for me, it it's, would maybe be a little bit easier to look up and say, oh, yeah, that person did it and, and I can see myself in them. Um, so that's just something times, maybe to think about. How many times, either when you started or before you started, did someone tell you that you have to work twice as hard to get to the same place? Quite a bit, you know, I, I think, it, I don't know if you guys heard the same thing, you know, as, as different types of minorities, but, you know, I, I, I heard it from quite a few people, both, you know, females and then males who I feel like were just trying to look out for me. Um, did, did you believe it? it? Whether it's true or not, I don't know. I think that's a hard thing to say, you know, it, it's hard to say um, well, whether or not I've had it? to work on Go ahead. What'd you say? Did you believe it when you started? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think when I came in, I just, I felt like the odd one out. And we even, I mean, we have a residency program that I would say is actually rather diverse when you look across the country, especially for the South. Um, and I still think that for me, I felt like I didn't belong. And, and a lot of that's just internal issues, you know, with with uh, imposter syndrome, you know, and just saying, am I good enough for this? And then I think you just, you find people who are willing to support you and it gets you through it. Um, but it's definitely, it, it's, it's hard. Nothing about orthopedic residency is easy. <laughs> well, you have, you have the double, you have double minority cards, right? Cause you mentioned yeah. earlier, you have, you, you're a lesbian out, married, yep. out of it. And we're proud of you for that too. But how, how big a role yeah. did that play too? Cause I mean, people see women, right? Women in orthopedic yeah. now, if you look at any diversity lecture, or pretty much any diversity lecture, I should say, most of, most of the time yeah. it's about women in orthopedics. Not a lot about you know um, the other minority classes, LGBTQXZY, yeah. <laughs> uh, brown, yes. Asian, you know, it's that often gets not neglected because a lot of the struggles are the same, but it's definitely underrepresented in a different way. So how how big of a role has that played for you? So, you know, I think for me, initially on residency interviews, I would try not to, um, 
at the time I wasn't married, but I tried not to uh, discuss my significant other because I was nervous that it would be a factor that maybe would keep me from getting into some places. Um, well, but I actually did the exact opposite. It is, yeah. On I'm, the fellowship trail, though, I will say I did the exact opposite. I actually did mention it and was sure to have them know because at this point in my life, I just don't want to be anywhere where I feel like I'm not accepted for who I am. And I, I mean, that's advice I'd give anyone who is listening to this and is a minority is just be yourself because at the end of the day, you don't want to be somewhere where you have to hide something about yourself. Great advice, Brittany. Thanks guys. (laughs) Um, I mean, what do you, what do you guys feel about that? You know, as obviously you can't hide the fact that, you know, when we were talking about um, getting rid of step scores and having more subjective factors when it comes to, to ranking students, I was, I had this mental image in my head of a bunch of students wearing like masks on their face. So they, people, their tanks wouldn't be able to tell what race they are, like a bag. Well, well that's, um, been, yeah. that's been talked about, dude. That's been talked about. Like p- people have talked about doing yeah. blind interviews. Where, where the interviewer sits behind a screen and then the interviewee's on the other side of the screen and you can't see each other. And that's been talked yeah, about. Yeah, which in some ways I would actually really hate because I feel like it's a lot of when I speak, it's, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's nonverbal communication and it's just, yeah. you know, can you make eye contact with someone? Can you make someone feel comfortable? And that's a lot of even being a doctor, you know, can yeah. you get your patient who's sitting in front of you to feel comfortable and trust you? It's and uh, It's a really fine line yeah. encouraging between evening the playing field and limiting the ability to interview well and interview properly. And I don't think we know where the line is yet. Um, I don't know that, that to me seems a, like a step far. I can see the, the theory behind it. Um, I, I like, I like what you said, you know, when, when you're an underrepresented minority, you, you should, it, you know, if as long as you're comfortable with it, just, just be yourself and put your best foot forward. And I think change has to come not from the students applying or from the residents applying the fellowship, you know, change has to come from the leaders who are already there. You know, when we were, when we were residents, we didn't have much power to, to change anything because we're going through the process. We're under the radar. We're trying to get through, you know, now that we're transitioning out of that, that training mode and we're stepping forward into positions of more, more leadership and more responsibility, you know, it's on people like us to, to create that change. So I think for students, and, res- and residents applying to fellowship, just like you said, you know, be comfortable with who you are as as best as you're able, and and then when you when you're done with that, you know, try to make the change that you want so that what, you. What change? You know. Like what? What change? What can we do? What's what? What actions do we need to take? That's a it's a very broad question. You know, I think it's a very broad question. As far as getting more minorities into or, into orthopedics, first of all, do is that well, something we need? Second of all, well, the goal of it all shouldn't be that. Go ahead. Well, I just think I think the goal of it shouldn't be a, a certain number, like you know, more minorities or more females or whatever number it is. It shouldn't be you know twenty percent have to be this and twenty percent have to be that, because then you're taking people, you know it's not based on merit anymore. Then it's based on, oh, we don't have any like, you know, Asian people in our program. Let's go get two Asian people. You don't want to be a quota. You don't want to be a quota. Yeah. 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 
But I think the goal should be we we have to create a culture where where everyone is judged for their own ability, and we have to and for people to minimize preconceptions as much as as much as they can, or at least recognize those biases in themselves, and try to try to minimize it minimize it when they're dealing with residents or students. So. You know, here's a here's a stereotype against uh, Asian people. You know, they think Asian people are nerdy and unathletic, and that's probably why Asian people struggle to get into orthopedics. Like that's just the bottom line. And I make up for it by myself. <laughs> but but that being said, you know, if if you're if you're interviewing an applicant and his name is like his last name is uh, Wang or something, you know. Um, mm. And he's, yeah, he's coming into your room and you have this inherent bias against him already. And you're like, oh, he's going to, you know, he's going to have a heavy accent. He's going to have glasses and look nerdy and probably not be able to bench press 10 pounds or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's funny <laughs> as it is. Right? Which is, which is very bad. important in orthopedics. You know, it's very, it's good to say, as funny as that may seem, it's, it's like one of the key requirements. But, but I think the goal we're trying to, trying to achieve eventually over time is for people to recognize those biases in themselves and and hopefully change that you know it's it's not something about fully the number it's about changing the culture to the point where people who may have inherent biases against females when they interview a female they re realize that themselves and give the applicant a fair chance and judge the person for the person and that's that's the goal in terms of specific actions to get there that's that's really tough um, because you're talking about changing people's mentalities and and that's not something you can easily do except for the movie Inception, which was a good movie. <laughs> but but I yeah, think that's tough. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think you make a lot of really great points, Jay. And I, I think that right now, just even seeing our AOS president being a female is a huge change, um, you know, and I think we're, we're going in the right direction. There still is plenty of inherent bias, um, especially in orthopedics. I, it's, it's hard because as a female, I still think it is important for things like orthopedics is a physically demanding job in a lot of ways. And, you know, back to the fellowship answer, you know, I, I hate saying like men are stronger than females, anything like that. Um, but, you know, if you're someone who doesn't want to you know, pound on a really heavy mallet all day, then yeah, you may be more drawn to pediatrics or hand, you know what I mean? And male or female. Uh, and it, it may be why we never, you know, I hope we get to a point where we're 50-50 female um, at some point or more, but I agree with you on the quota. I don't think that we go about making a quota of if you don't have a female in your program, you need to get one or you have to have female faculty. I mean, that's just, that's silly. It, it should at the end of the day be, are you a good enough candidate? You know, are you going to be a good orthopedic surgeon? And all the other factors shouldn't matter. What's your skin color? Who do you date? You know, are, what's your gender? Things like that shouldn't matter. Um, not, but and not there only are is it silly. Yeah, I mean, not only is it silly, but it puts it puts people off. Like, you know, yeah. if I were a white male and there was a quota saying that, you know, we're only going to take, you know, 40% of our program is going to be white male now. We've got to take... 50% of underrepresented people. That would kind right. of make me upset too. I'd be pissed. So I think, yeah, no, I agree. I'd be yeah. pissed. So I think a couple, a couple things we can do as we're transitioning into leadership roles, you know, I think 
number one, just by being really good at what we do, or at least making an effort and giving a darn about about being a good surgeon. Okay, it's okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see we, we have the explicit I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a good dude institute this year, so I cut out the bad language. But I know I can't believe you don't have your suit on. Yeah, this is uh I don't go naked either. this is my version of naked. Everything stepped up a level. But this is me getting naked right now. I, I thought I thought for sure you'd be wearing scrubs. Yeah. yeah, they all have COVID germs on them. So I, but anyway, um a, a couple things just being just giving a giving a crap about being a good surgeon and you know if if you want if you want people to see that a woman or an Asian guy or a brown guy that we can be good with peak surgeons you know and that's what you are then 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 prove it to them and then do that and you should do that anyway for your patients so it's not like it's an extra step or anything but you should you should try it try it anyway you know and then the other thing is when you're in a workplace environment and you hear, you know, unnecessary discrimination, discriminatory phrases against, against certain people, then it's kind of your responsibility in a way to, to speak up and maybe, maybe open people's eyes a little bit. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think you're right. You know, on average, uh, a female's probably, probably has less strength than a male. That's, that's biology. So, Except but, I'm stronger than you, Jay. Well, I'm not Ken Lamb, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think I think there's things that so so if you hear some people talking about not taking women with a piece because they're they're not strong enough, you know, then there's yeah, definitely that's just, that say. is that's blatant discrimination, right? Yeah, of course. That's but, not, but that's like, not okay. We, but but we people don't hear it anymore. Or at oh, least not we, not in it's not as common, but we do still see it. You think? So Brittany, do we see that? I think so. I think probably um, the majority you know, of people. I, yeah, I, I think our residency, we're, we've we've kind of lucked out where we are, um, but I, I'm sure it's still around. I, you know, I'm on a Facebook group, and sometimes I'll post things like they still don't have a surgeon's dressing room or a surgeon's locker yeah. room is yeah. the male's locker room, you know, and the staff's locker room is the female locker room. So I just think it's things <laughs> like that where innately it's hard to see something like that and then not and mentally put yourself a step down. You know, I don't get to walk into the surgeon's locker room. I walk into the staff locker room and the nurse's locker room. And I think the thing that we do see is something that's kind of unfortunate and it's from the patient side. And I don't think this is going to change is, or at least no time soon is, you know, you walk into a room and they say, Oh, are you the nurse or are you the physical therapist? And I think that that's just a hard thing to hear as a female trainee um, over and over again and not, it just takes yourself kind of having, finding a way to have positive self-talk with yourself and, and just remind, you know, just have a certain amount of certainty in who you are and, and how good you are at the things you do. But I agree with Jay, you just have to find a way to be a badass, you know, and, and break through barriers and you have to, you have to be the best to show them that you're good enough, you know, and that you belong there. So, so yeah, that brings up a good point and it's, is the point about the question about when is when are we going to be happy right when is when is diversity going to be okay when can we stop yeah. talking about diversity in orthopedics is there ever a stopping point that's a tough question that's what makes diversity in orthopedics very hard is because there's not a not a real finish line right there's no number that we can reach there's no outcome measure that we can score that tells us okay it's enough um and I think the answer to the question of when are we done is to 
it's multi, it's multifaceted. I think. Um, I think yeah. the one thing you brought up was, and we talked about it a little bit, was the fact that you have to you have to show people that you can operate. You have to show people that you are worth being there. I think, mm-hmm. at the, you know, in the in our utopia of orthopedics, that shouldn't be that way, right? Everyone should right. start out on the same field. You shouldn't have to show people that you can operate. You should be graded and judged on your ability to operate. Um, Agreed. And it, it, it kind of brings up, um, you know, when, when everyone's starting orthopedics right now, we're not all on the same starting line. Bye, Jay. all start at the same point right some of us have to show more to to get the same judgment and that's one thing we can fix right fix that through fixing inherent biases um but also it also asks the question you know we want everyone to, to be judged the same to begin with right but we all come in with different physical skills we all come in with different knowledge base so that brings up the line between um between your capabilities and uh you know the diversity you face and we all know people that scream or play their uh, race card and play their diversity card anytime there's any trouble right yeah you know anytime they don't perform anytime they don't do anything capable they get in trouble they play their diversity card. And personally, I think that hurts everyone's cause because then you get people who look to that and say, well, you know, uh, they're scared to take minorities because of this. They're scared that they're going to get that card played against them when it's, it's not really a bias. It's just, a, it's a, it's a judgment on their actual capabilities. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where, where the finish line is for this. I don't have a good answer for it. I, I just know that there's some problems that we can fix. I just don't know when it's going to be enough. And I don't think anyone really does. And anyone that tells you they have a complete answer will, uh, um, you know, I don't think they really know. It's hard, I mean, it's hard I, for anyone. Go ahead, Brittany. Sorry. Oh, I mean, I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, even me being a, a double minority or whatever, you know, I still have my own inherent biases against, you know, I I'm, I don't know what at the moment, but I, you know, I'm sure I do. So I think it's hard sometimes, you know, for some of these, especially the older guys who've been doing this a while, I just don't want them to feel attacked at the same time. You know, like, I think that the foundation of orthopedics, they've done a lot to lay it for us and, and they've done a really good job. And now I think we just need to move it forward with, you know, getting to the point where, as an orthopedic surgeon, you don't even think about your gender. You don't even think about your race. You just, you're an orthopedic surgeon and the rest doesn't matter. Um, and I, you know, when we get to that point, I, I would be happy. What yeah. I, know, say, I, thought you, I, don't know. I forgot. <laughs> I, I think, I think I was going to say, I think I was going to say back to Mo's, to Mo's point about, um, you know, people who play the race card or the gender card, it's, it just goes to show it's, it's very difficult for somebody who's in the situation, who's, who's a resident or a student to really speak out for themselves, you know, because people could perceive that you're just playing a card. Um, and then it goes to the importance of having, having leaders in, in positions of influence who could speak for you and, and who, can, yeah. who can shut down anything they hear that's actually discriminatory towards you that's that's said behind closed doors and i think that's a role that we can we can play 
as uh, as attendings. So you know, it's hard for it's hard for like a female lesbian Asian guy sometimes to stick up for themselves when, <laughs> when is it a female like, lesbian you, like, guy? That's four cards. One person. <laughs> and then with the brown guy's like hairdo or something, all three of us were <laughs> or facial hair, brown guy's facial hair. God, I love that. Mm -hmm. But um, it it's hard for you know, it's hard for us to speak up for ourselves in, when we're when we're in training, and that just speaks to the importance of of people to speak up for us. And then I think that you know, I think you had mentioned someone had said something about um, coming in with different skill sets and and different stereotypes against our against whatever skill sets we have you know i think if if you hear that oh some you know someone so this type of person doesn't have this skill set or whatever you know i think i think one of the peaks is very complex it's not just like oh the strongest person is the best surgeon even though i yeah i'm pretty strong but <laughs> you know it's not it's not like that at all there's there's attention to detail and there's uh, manual dexterity um, there's how much you care. There's how much work you put into it. How well you are communicating. And you know, if we're going to stereotype and say females are not physically strong compared to males, you know, we can also counter stereotype. Not that not saying we should all throw stereotypes at each other, but you know, at the same time, I man, I, the females I know are way more detail oriented than a lot of guys I know. You know, they're probably better communicators than a lot of guys I know. So I think it's not fair to throw one. Not saying we should stereotype like everything but if we're going to stereotype against a certain type of person it's kind of not fair just to choose one trait to stereotype especially when orthopedics requires a lot of different skills yeah well and I, and I still you know I think that's a great point Jay and I, I think you know you talk about as we advance in our careers I think just remembering where you came from and the struggles that you did have when you were there and maybe reaching out to the people who could be struggling in the same way you know and just finding a way to be that mentor and to kind of let people know that you are a safe person to talk to and that you aren't going to judge and be, an ally. be there for them to talk to. Be an ally. Be an ally. That got heavy. It's almost been an hour. We yeah, I, Lauren's probably sick of um, <laughs> sitting in the parking lot. Lauren, the whole time? Actually, lot. Lauren's re recording all of our thoughts because it <laughs> was so awesome. Lauren's gonna show this to all her OB friends and be like, "Look how stupid these orthos are." Lauren is a scribe. She's, yeah, she's she she's dictating all of this. She's dictating it all. All right, all right guys. Well, I think this is good. Yeah, we'll we'll see you guys later. Thanks. All right. And that'll do it. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the first Ortho Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Brittany Warren, for hopping in. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. Just search the Ortho Podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter at the Ortho Podcast. Uh, if you have any comments or uh, want to get in touch, you can email us the Ortho Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram uh, at fractured underscore knowledge. And uh, you know we got more podcasts in the works. We'll keep doing this um, and uh, see where it goes. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Peace.